0: Hello, listeners! My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Do any of you use the phrase, that was luck, often? Luck or fortune is when something happens by chance. Honestly, this word is something that doesn't really go with our Christian belief. It doesn't relate to us because we live under the rule of God, who has perfectly planned our lives. Nothing happens in our lives by chance or luck. But the people of the world rely heavily on luck. The best example of this can be seen by looking at how many people play and try to win the lotto. There is someone who buys a lottery ticket every week that made this statement. Whenever I buy a lottery ticket for the week, I think about how happy my life will be when I win. I live out my week imagining what I will buy, where I will travel, and who to share the money with. I think that these people wager their money hoping that all of this will come true for them one day. I'm sure that everyone who buys lottery tickets has a different story and a reason for playing the game. The lottery is something that is loved by many people around the world. A while back, I came across an article about a young woman that won the lotto and sued the lottery company four years later. Why did the young girl decide to sue the company? I mean, she even won the lotto. This is what the article stated. In 2013, a 17-year-old teen named Jane Park from Scotland won 1 million British pounds in the Euro Millions Lottery. Before winning the lottery, Jane worked as an administrative temp for eight pounds an hour and lived with her mother in a small apartment. But after winning the lottery, she was able to live a totally different life. She even decided to have cosmetic surgery and breast implants. As she continued this life of shopping and buying anything she wanted, she began to realize that money can't buy happiness and that it had a way of complicating things. Her life became empty. She no longer had a purpose in life. She felt like she lost all of her remaining teen years. She believed that she went through all this at too young of an age. Park said she thinks that the minimum age for winning the lottery should be increased to 18 from 16 and sued Camelot, the company that owns Euromillions. When she won the lottery, Jane believed that her life would be 10 times better. But four years later, her life has become 10 times worse. Jane is not the only example of someone who wasted their life away or became bankrupt after winning the lottery. We hear more stories about people who have won the lottery that are now bankrupt, addicted to drugs, homeless, and sleeping on the street, and even committing suicide we end up hearing more sad stories than stories of success after winning the lottery. However, even through all this, the lottery ticket sales around the world only seem to be increasing. I think that this is because the people who buy these tickets believe that they will not be like the other people and will be careful with their new won money. But no one can be sure until they are in that situation. Having all that money in your hands, you are able to do all the things that you weren't able to do before. For example, buying a new car, moving into a new home, purchasing new clothes, new appliances for the house, traveling to other countries, the list goes on and on. When you end up constantly spending money like this, I think that it can only lead to the feeling of emptiness in life, like it did for Jane. up next is sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller. Today's topic is the public faith based on John chapter 4 verses 27 through 42. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy.
1: For this morning's consideration is a piece that we call, we call it public faith. Being public About our faith, from not just the earliest days of Redeemer, but I could actually say from the earliest hours of Redeemer, in the very first meeting we ever had, we talked about being a church not just for ourselves, not just for those of us who have faith who come to this church, but rather a church also for our friends in the city who not only didn't go to church, but who also found Christianity very implausible. For our entire history, we've tried to be a church that both equipped, that in which we equipped ourselves here to identify as Christians publicly and to be able to do that as disarmingly and as clearly as possible, but at the same time also to assume that in all of our services and all of our meetings that we have friends who find Christianity implausible, to be that kind of church. Now, how and why we do that can best be understood by looking at this text. Now, last week, we looked at the first half of chapter four. The first half of chapter four tells us about how Jesus Christ met this woman in Samaria, the Samaritan woman at the well, and revealed himself to her as the Messiah. This half, the second half of the chapter, tells about how she responded to that. Her life was changed by that, and the answer basically is summed up in one word in verse 39, testimony. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So let's ask this question. What did she testify to? And then let's ask, how did she testify to it? And then thirdly, how was she able to testify to it like that? So first of all, what did she testify to? Now, the word testify, that's a, an English translation of a Greek word. The Greek word, according to the lexicons, means to bear witness that provides a firsthand authentication of a fact of importance to many people. See, a testimony in a, in a court bring someone in to give testimony, to be a witness, and you want that witness to bear firsthand authenticated testimony to some fact that is important for the decision of the court. So it's firsthand authentication of some fact that's important for other people. By the way, the Greek word is the word martyria, from which we get our word martyr, which raises the question, how did a word that originally simply meant to give testimony to Jesus Christ turn into a word that meant to be persecuted and killed, and the answer is we'll see as we go along through the sermon. It takes bravery sometimes to do this. So what did she testify to? If you look at what she actually says, she testifies both to something subjective that was true for her and something objective true for everyone, something that was subjectively true for her and objectively true for everyone. What she subjectively is talking about is this. It comes up twice, if you notice. In the very top, it says... She said to the people, she left her water jar, she went back to town, she talked to the people she knew, and she said, come, see a man, told me everything I ever did. And later on, it actually comes up again, down in verse 29, it says, the woman's testimony was, he told me everything I ever did. Now here's, here's what that is saying, a man talked to me personally about my life. This is one of the many places in this sermon I'm going to have to refer back to the first half of the chapter. But notice how in verse 27, it says, when his disciples returned, Jesus had sent them into town to get food. He was there alone with the woman at the well and spoke to her. And when they came back, it said they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. That refers to what what she is talking about. And that's this. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So it was a racial barrier. In that patriarchal society, men did not speak, certainly to women they didn't know, women that were members of their family, in public. Not only that, she was also far down the social ladder, even in Samaria, and yet Jesus Christ did not care. Jesus just reaches right through every racial, the racial barrier, the gender barrier, the social barrier, and engages her personally, and talks to her personally about her life. She'd never seen anybody do that. She'd never seen somebody up the social ladders, not care about the social ladders. He wanted to talk to her personally. He wanted to talk to her privately. And she'd never experienced anything like that. Now, here's what's fascinating about her testimony. She doesn't know much about Jesus at all, and yet she's grasping almost the core of the gospel, and that is, here was a man up those ladders, not caring about those ladders, talking to her about living water, soul satisfaction, and here's what she grasped. He's saying that the spiritual blessing is available for anybody. It's not a moral attainment. It's not for the good, it's not for the successful, it's not for the respectful, it's for anyone. And she was grasping that what he was talking about was a matter of grace. She was experiencing grace. So there's a subjective personal experience of grace, something she'd never felt. But she was also bearing witness, she was testifying to something objective. Down at the very bottom, it says, when they said to the woman, verses 42, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is savior of the world. When they say he really is savior of the world, indicating you said it and we didn't believe it, but we went and talked to him and he really is. In other words, she had said to him, not just he's touched me with grace, but this man is savior of the world. We think he really is now. Now that's a pretty strong statement. She is talking about something objective. She's not just saying that this man is savior of the Jews, nor just savior of the Samaritans, nor just savior of the good people, nor is she just saying he's just my savior. She's not coming and saying, look, he's true for me, but he might not be true for you. That's not martyria. That's not a testimony. You don't need somebody in court to come up and give testimony about some inner experience that you're having that might not be true for anybody else. You don't need that. You're not gonna call a witness like that. You want someone who's gonna bear witness to something objective that's true for other people too. And that's what she's doing. She's saying, he's not just true for me. He's the savior of the world. And so, what is she bearing witness to? She's bearing witness to a life-changing savior of the world who saves by grace. One more thing about what she's uh, testifying to before we move on. One of the things that's so interesting is that Jesus, in a way, is both building on her Samaritan culture and beliefs, and yet shattering them too. At the very end of chapter four, the very last thing that she says to him is, she says, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. And then that's where Jesus says, that's me. Did the Samaritans believe in the Messiah? Well, yes and no. The Samaritans believed in someone they called the Taheb, which really was a word that meant the teacher or the prophet. And they actually believed not in a savior who was going to come, but a teacher. And not a savior for the world, but a teacher for the Samaritans who would just uh, illuminate them and, and, and teach them many things. So on the one hand, uh, Jesus was building on what she expected. But on the other hand, she was, he was shattering her categories too. And let me just say this. Jesus Christ comes to every individual and every culture in the world and offers what you could call subversive fulfillment. Subversive fulfillment. Because on the one hand, Jesus comes to every individual and every culture and says, to every individual, I can give you the very deepest desires of your heart, what you've always wanted. And he says to every culture, I can fulfill your best aspirations. And yet at the same time he says, however, but the way you've been going about trying to get those things fulfilled is absolutely wrong. On the one hand, Jesus Christ offers you what your heart most wants, at the same time shatters your categories and demands that you change your mind on many, many, many things. Subversive fulfillment confronts you in order to fulfill you. He did that to her, and he does that to everyone. So she bears witness to this. She's testifying this. But let's take a look a little bit more, even though began to look at it, actually, how she does it. Not what she talks about, not what she says, but how she says it. And let's notice three things. I guess I could call three marks of how she does it. Transparency, simplicity, and bravery. The transparency. Notice she does not get up and preach a sermon. She went to her town. She went to the people who she knew. And all she really did was say, this is what happened to me. She was just open. This is what's going on in my mind, my heart, and my life. So let me say, if you're not public with your faith if you're not willing to identify as a Christian publicly, if you're not willing to give testimony, it's because you're hiding who you are. You're hiding your heart. You're hiding what's going on inside your heart. You're lying about who you are. Because if you're a Christian, Jesus should be central. He should be central to how you face your problems. He should be central to how you uh, make your decisions, how you set your life priorities. And if that's the case, then testimony is nothing but natural. What it means is if you're a Christian and you've got plenty of people around who find Christianity implausible and you're not talking to them about your faith, what it means is you have short-circuited the normal course of a relationship. Because the normal course of a relationship is, you know, without going too fast, but that you become more transparent with each other as you get closer to somebody, you, you, you share more about who you are, what you do. You let people know about it. You don't do that right away, but as the relationship goes on, you show more and more transparency. If you're a Christian and you're not being public with your faith, it's because you're hiding who you are. Either that or Jesus isn't very central to you and you ought to take a look at the foundations of your own faith. So, frankly, if you're not as disarming and as natural in talking to friends about your faith, you're guilty of relationship malpractice. Number two, transparency, secondly, simplicity. You know, in some ways, she's at a disadvantage. There's a couple things that she didn't know yet, which are fairly important, like he's gonna die on the cross. I mean, even though actually we'll get to that, he he hinted at that to her, but I'm sure she didn't get it. She doesn't understand much about him, and yet, because of that, in some ways, she's got a leg up on us. Because her testimony is so simple. Come see a man. Not, here's all the stuff you gotta do. Here's what it means to live a Christian life. Here are five steps in order to, you know. No, I just want you to go see him. To the simplicity, people say, well, I don't know how to share the gospel. Jesus, one word, go see Jesus, meet Jesus, rely on Jesus, figure out who he is. It was very simple. And the reason why it's that simple is because Christianity is distinct from other religions and she was figuring that out. See, every other religion, you get, Buddha and Muhammad would say, "Don't." it's not about me they're, they're going to say, don't look at me. It's about the way. What's the way? Well, the way is the path that you must tread and then you find salvation. What is the way? Well, Buddha would say, the eightfold path to enlightenment. And Muhammad would say, here's the five pillars and you must submit to them. In other words, they would say, well, it's not about me. Don't, don't look at me. It's, uh, uh, it's about the way. But John chapter 14, Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or at the tomb of Lazarus, Martha confronts Jesus and says, oh, my brother has died. And Now, what does Jesus say? Like the founders of other religions or any other religion, Jesus would have said, well, now, if Lazarus has lived a good enough life, if, he, if he's followed the way of salvation, then he will be resurrected at the end of time or something like that. That's not what he says. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. No other founder of any religion ever talked like that. So there's a transparency a disarming transparency, a, a simplicity. But also, let's, let's just admit, there was a certain amount of bravery. How, why? Let's remember that Jesus met her at noon. Now, women ordinarily did not draw water at the well at noon. They went out in the morning. Why? Well, two reasons. One was, it was far cooler in the morning than in the middle of the day. Uh, Secondly, you needed the water for the whole day's chores. You had to wash the dishes. You had to wash the clothes. You had to cook. I mean, you needed water for the day's chores so you wouldn't go at noon. Why did she go at noon? Why did she come alone? And every commentator, every historian says because she was at the bottom of the social pecking order that she, in many ways, was a social outcast in all those ways. And therefore, when she picks up and says, I got to go tell everybody about this, certainly she knew that she was likely to get ridiculed. I mean, when people see someone like her coming in a small town and she says, let me tell you about a man. He did this and this. Maybe he's the Messiah. You know, surely she knew that a lot of people would say, you expect me to believe you? Surely she knew that because of her social location, she was likely to be ridiculed. In fact, her social location was likely to get worse. But she went and did it anyway. I mean, she shows the bravery She shows the transparency. She shows the simplicity. And so she testified to the truth. Now, before moving on, in fact, in order to move on to the last point, to set up the last point, let me just deal with the normal objection that some people, most people in New York are going to say, well, you're making it sound really sweet and as attractive as you possibly can. But this is still proselytizing. This is still one person telling other people how they have to believe. You're saying you have the truth. And uh, your understanding of God and religion is right. And you want other people to uh, adopt your position, that you're right and they're wrong. And that's terrible. That's wrong. That's narrow. What do we say to that? I say that that, that's wrong. It's wrong emotionally and logically. It doesn't work emotionally and doesn't work logically. Say, don't say you have the truth. Don't say that you have the right view of God and religion and tell other people that they need to be persuaded or convert to yours. Don't do that. Well, I'm saying that's wrong, and it doesn't work emotionally and logically. How so? Okay, emotionally, it's not how the heart works. Imagine a family, and a member of the family has MS, and they get a treatment that enormously improves the life of that family member. What are you gonna do? You're gonna wanna shout it from the housetop. You're gonna say, I wanna do commercials. I wanna give testimony for this treatment. I wanna tell everybody about it, right? Okay, now, if you see that, and you don't really agree that probably the treatment is as good as they think, you might disagree with them about what they're saying, but you're not going to consider them narrow for trying to tell you about it, are you? Of course not. Why wouldn't they want to shout from the house tops? They may be right, they may be wrong, but they're not narrow. Some weeks, actually a couple of years ago now, The Atlantic ran an article on what it's like to be an atheist in college, but it was intriguing. One of the college atheists said... I have no respect for a Christian who doesn't try to convert me. It that a Christian who doesn't try to convert me cannot be a good person. Why? Because if you think you've got a cure for my soul and you don't share it with me, either you don't love me or you don't actually believe it. Because that's just the way the heart works. If I believe what you believe, I wouldn't be a good person if I wasn't trying to persuade you of it. But it's also not true logically. Let's go back. So usually what it said is, if you think you have the truth... About God and religion, and you're trying to persuade others of it. That's narrow. That divides the world. It's very bad. It's, you shouldn't do it. But if you say no one's view of God and religion is superior to anybody else's, that is a view of God and religion that you think is superior to people who don't agree with you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be making the point. Or let me put it another way. I read a book recently by Terry Eagleton, he's a British literary critic, called The Illusions of Postmodernism, and what's interesting about the book is Terry Eagleton points out that many people today are against binaries. What's binaries? Well, when you think you have the truth, you set up a binary. I have the truth, you don't. I'm normal, you're abnormal. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm reasonable, you're not. So you set up binaries, and that's what's dividing the world. We need to stop binaries. We need to make sure that everyone should be free to do what they do and live how they live and believe what they believe. So we can't set up binaries. But as Terry Eagleton points out, which is pretty intriguing, at one point he says, for all its vaunted openness, postmodernism can be quite as exclusive and censorious of orthodoxies as the orthodoxies it opposes. And what he actually says is, if you say binaries are bad, saying people have the truth is bad. What you've done is you set up a new binary. Here are the people who believe in the truth and set up binaries, they're bad. And here are those of us who do not set up binaries and do not believe anyone has the truth, we're good. Wait a minute, that's a binary. And what Eagleton points out is this, everybody's making exclusive truth claims. The minute you say you shouldn't make exclusive truth claims, you just did it. And therefore, the real question for the world is not. How do we stop setting up binaries, which of course immediately sets up a binary. How do we stop making exclusive truth claims, which immediately is one, but whose exclusive truth claims equip them to be the most respectful, loving, and kind of people they differ with? That's it. Whose understanding of the truth makes you the kind of people the world needs? Because it's true. but Eagleton is right is we do have a problem. And the people who are concerned about binaries are right to be concerned about the fact that people get very self-righteous, they feel like they have the truth, they feel like they can oppress people that don't have the truth. Eagleton just pointed out that uh, people who say we don't believe in saying anybody has the truth, that you can just be every bit as orthodox as the orthodoxies you're criticizing. You have to be. So here's the question. Whose understanding of the truth makes you the most gentle, kind, respectful of the people you're talking to? And the answer is this, the reason why this woman could be as humble and as disarming and as effective in talking to her friends about the truth was because of the way she was treated by Jesus himself. Because of the way she received this life change, she was able to offer it in the way that frankly the world needs. Because the world needs people out there making truth claims, but in a way that's respectful and loving and not harsh and self-righteous and divisive. How? Let's go back. Jesus Christ starts talking to this woman. She's shocked. In verse 9 of the chapter, she's amazed that a Jewish man is talking to a Samaritan woman. So she's already impressed. This is somebody different. He doesn't care about these racial and gender barriers. But he starts to say, I've got living water. Soul satisfaction. And so she says, sir, give me that living water. Now, when she says that, this is almost certainly what she's thinking. This guy knows I'm a Samaritan, obviously knows I'm a woman. It's amazing he's talking to me. Thank goodness, though, he doesn't know I've had five husbands, and the man I'm living with right now is not my husband. I mean, he's a Jewish rabbi. If he knew that, he would not be offering me living water. In fact, if he knew about that, he would be saying, what? You're living with a man? I'll come back in two years and if you've kept yourself clean and you've really changed your life, maybe we can talk about living. So she says, well, I'm so glad he doesn't know about my men and my situation. And she says, sir, give me the living water. And Jesus says, well, why don't you bring your husband back so I can tell you both? Inside she goes, "Uh uh-oh. She says, well, sir, I, I, I have no husband. And Jesus says, I know you don't have a husband. The man you're living with right now is not your husband. You've had five husbands. The man you're living with is not your husband. I know that. And probably at first her heart dies and then suddenly she realizes, he's offering me living water and he knows. He knows everything I've ever done. Probably she was not quite able to still get her head around it because discomfort is such that she says, let's change the subject. Let's talk about the great problem of the day. She says, sir, I see you're a prophet. The big controversy is the Samaritans believe you worship God here and the Jews believe you worship God in the temple. Now, where is it that you really connect to God? Is it in the Jerusalem temple or is it up here at our temple? And Jesus is not daunted, but he looks at her and says, the hour is coming and now is when you won't need a temple to go to God. You won't need those sacrifices for sins. You won't need a priest. You won't need all the ablations and the ablutions and all the ceremonial cleansings. You'll be able to go right to God directly. But why? Because the hour is coming and now is. And nowhere in the book of John... Does Jesus ever talk about his hour or the hour without referring to his death? And he says, I'm about to die, and because of that, I'm gonna make all temples obsolete. And she says, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all this to us. And Jesus says, I, the one you're talking to, am he. And then she realized, he knew everything I'd ever done, and he still offered me the living water. Why does she leave her jar and immediately go to tell people about it? Well, I think it's because she saw a beauty. If you experience something beautiful, just incredibly beautiful, anything that just moves you, it's actually an involuntary muscle. You want to go grab somebody and say, look at this. I want you to see it. I want you to hear it. If you just love something, you just desperately need to share it. You can't help it. That's the way the heart works. And so she must have seen a beauty. That water jar represents her life. And she just drops her life as it is and goes out and starts telling people about Jesus. What was the beauty she saw? come see a man who saw me to the bottom and still loved me to the skies. To be loved but not known is superficial and unsatisfying. They love you, but they don't know you. To be known and rejected for it is our greatest nightmare. But to be known all the way down and loved infallibly, endlessly, is heaven. And for him to do it, that was the beauty well how is it possible you could give the living water to somebody without the proper record the answer is the hour I'm sure she didn't understand what he meant by that but we do and you know what happened at that hour that made all temples obsolete he went onto the cross and up there he said I thirst he thirsted so we could have the living water he shriveled under the wrath of divine justice what we deserved so that we could have life He went to the cross so that he could say, I don't care about your sexual past and I don't care whether you have killed people for hire. I have living water for you. Come get it. Repent, turn to me. And that's why she was able to say what she said. I've never seen a man like this. At first, it was, I've never seen a man who didn't care about racial and gender barriers. I never saw a man who was so socially egalitarian but boy, it goes beyond that. I've never seen a man who could offer living water to someone who's been a moral failure. Oh, beyond that, he sees me all the way down. That's the beauty. Here's the final point. It's true that if you think you have the truth, it tends to make you self-righteous. If you say, I have the truth, politically, I've got the truth. Philosophically, I've got the truth. Theologically, I've got the truth. Culturally, I've got the truth then it's very hard not for that to be divisive. To say, I'm right, you're wrong, you are the bad people, we gotta get rid of you, we've gotta make sure that we push you away so that you don't pollute the things. But if the truth is this, if this is the truth, the truth, capital T, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you get salvation by admitting that you're a failure and you need it by grace, then that doesn't make you superior. It actually undermines that whole thing. And you become part of the agents, part of the people out there in the world who can talk about truth, because everybody is, but in a way that doesn't make you say, I'm better than you. Of course, because actually the truth is that I'm not better than you. If you're a Christian, the truth is I'm not better than you. You might be, you might be a better parent than me. You might be a better person than me. You might be a more moral person than me. You certainly might be smarter than me. It doesn't matter because I didn't become, I wasn't, I'm not saved because I'm better or smarter or a better parent or any of that stuff. I'm saved by grace. If that is the meaning of your life, and if that's the, the basis of your understanding of, your, of who you are, that in spite of all that, you are loved infallibly, it both humbles you and yet creates confidence in you that makes you a witness, that makes you able to testify the way she did. You know, when Jesus actually says, I have a food that you don't know anything of, they say, What are you talking about? It's in the middle of the passage. Well, my food is to do God's will, and God's will is to harvest, to have a harvest, to to spread the seed of the gospel and see people's lives change. There is nothing, nothing more enriching than to see someone else's life change the way yours was, as you have shared a testimony about the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's be a church like that. Let's be a community of people like that. Actually, weirdly enough, the world needs it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us your, uh, your gospel. And the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus and grace. The gospel is uh, something that very often people do not want to hear. It's subversive. It's confrontive. It always calls people to change. Uh, it's humbling. It's even humiliating. We have to admit our need for grace. And yet, in the end, it's such a beauty. It's so sweet. And it's so life-changing. We just pray, Lord, that the things that have happened in our lives, you just use us as channels. Take our lives and let us be channels of your living water into the lives of the people around us, our friends and this whole city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Yeah, I Yeah. it
0: Program called "The Good News of the Gospel."
3: Hello, listeners. My name is Youngin Winston. You are now listening to "The Good News of the Gospel."
4: Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Winston.
3: Last week, we discussed about death. We also compare the definition of a death in a worldly perspective and in a biblical perspective.
4: That's right. We discussed that the worldly perspective of death means the end of life. However, the biblical perspective of death means a separation.
3: Yes, and we also talk about three types of a death. The first was the death of the flesh. The second was the spiritual death. And the third is the death which the Bible expressed as the second death.
4: Yes, the death of the flesh is separation of body and spirit, and the spiritual death is our spirit being separated from God. This death occurred way before our physical death, when Adam and Eve disobeyed the word of God and ate the fruit from the tree of good and evil. Then the death, which is the separation from God, came into humans. They were driven out of the Garden of Eden. The fellowship with God was broken.
3: You said since then, every human is born under spiritual death, right?
4: That's right. That's why Jesus came to the earth to give life to our dead souls. We found a few Bible references last week to support these ideas.
3: I remember talking last week about how we don't realize that we are spiritually dead since we are already dead. It's easy to think that and that spiritual death doesn't exist since we don't feel it in our everyday lives. So when we live in the world, we might think, since I don't feel it, where is the spiritual death? But after being saved, I realized I was a dead before.
4: It's ironic, isn't it? It's ironic that we can't feel that the spirit is dead because we are spiritually dead, but our physical body is alive and is unable to admit that the spirit is dead. So how sad would it be if we didn't experience the spirit of being saved after the physical death? I feel for those souls who die without receiving salvation from Jesus. Anyways, the third death is the second death written in the book of Revelations, where we are separated from God eternally.
3: The key point is that the second death is eternal.
4: Yes, the eternity of the second death gives a sense of opportunity as opposed to end of mortal death and spiritual death. In other words, it can be described as restoration.
3: Restoration?
4: Yes. It's to reattach what was separated.
3: I see. It is the work to bring together what has been separated.
4: So, the problem is, is this restoration really possible? In fact, one of the most important characteristics of God righteousness the righteousness of God
3: the righteousness of God I have heard of that term often but I haven't studied it in depth it would be nice to hear an explanation of what righteousness is before we continue
4: the Bible teaches us of righteousness or justice as one of God's characteristics for example it is clearly seen in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 16 Let's read it.
3: But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice, and the holy God will show Himself holy by His righteousness. Yes, God is the Lord Almighty, just, exalted, holy, righteous. It lists God's characteristics.
4: Yes, it says God is just and righteous. Just and righteous have similar meanings. The dictionary's definition of justice is right, duty of truth, and righteousness is fair and righteous duty.
3: By looking at the definitions, can we say that God does the right actions according to the truth, the one who is just and righteous?
4: Yes, that's basically right. However, let's take a look at the biblical explanation. The Bible says the Hebrew word for righteousness is Mishpat Sidatka Mishpat means attitude of judging, righteousness and fairness. And Sidatka means justice, holiness and virtue. Righteousness is one of God's characteristics and it is shown throughout the scripture in how he treats each individual fairly. God does not distort righteousness but judges with righteousness.
3: Then we can understand justice as a right and fairness.
4: Yes, that's correct. It can be said that justice is right and fair. However, right and fair have some differences between worldly definition and the biblical definition. Often we think fair is treating everything the same. What does it usually mean to be fair?
3: It's to share the same amount. For example, three people would share three pieces of cake equally.
4: That's right. When we think of fair, that is what we usually think of. It's not to be shifted to one side. Of course, that means fair, but it has another meaning. For example, what kind of scale is a fair scale?
3: A fair scale? A fair scale would it be a scale that accurately represents the weight of an object.
4: Yes, a fair scale would tell you the exact weight. It would not be fair If the same weight is shown for each different object, a fair one would show one pound for a one pound object and five pounds for a five pound object.
3: That is obvious.
4: In Leviticus, God told the Israelites to use just weights, balances, and measurements. He is saying not to deceive others. God being just and righteous also means that He rewards those who are good and He punishes those who are wicked.
3: I see. It wouldn't be fair to receive either praise or punishment all the time disregarding if we did good or bad. It wouldn't be a fair, but rather unjust.
4: That's right. This isn't fair, but rather unfair. That's why when saying God is just and righteous means God rewards those who are good and punishes those who are wicked. God does not choose to do or not to do. But because it is in his character, he must do so, and he does.
3: That is why God said that so he can be just towards people who have committed sins.
4: Yes, you said it correctly. The God of justice must be just as a judge regarding the fact that the truth and the word of God has been distorted and countered. The justice is done by punishing the sin and rewarding the good. However, mankind has sinned and God had to punish sin with death. If God did not judge sin, then God is no longer a righteous God and it would break God's order of things. Then God wouldn't be God. God is who He is because of His characteristics.
3: To rephrase, the unjust thing in our world, just like if someone harms another person with the evil intents in their heart and commits murder, the social justice would not come to pass unless we catch him and convict him.
4: That's correct. We have to remember this. When God's word, which is the truth, is distorted, attacked, and not kept, then justice has to be done, and that justice being done can be expressed as restoration.
3: Restoration means to fix the wrongs.
4: Yes, that's why I asked the first question. Is it possible to recover from God's word being distorted? In order to straighten what has been bent, a force must be applied and there must be a change to it. In God's perspective, there is a simple way to apply righteousness and justice to sin. What would that be?
3: Simple solution? I'm not sure. What is it? Is it just a uh, punishing the sin?:
4: Yes, that's right. God punishes those who have sinned with death. As the word of God says, the result of sin is death. God puts an end to rebellious Satan, his followers, and his serpent with death. This is just. The sinners are punished and forgotten, and the word of God saying the wages of sin is death becomes truth.
3: That is a scare to think about. But if I think about it, if God performed the justice in that way, everything would have ended. But God didn't show justice right then.
4: That's right. God postponed performing justice for a bit because in his character there is also patience. God hates sin, but he's also very patient. It is because of his glory Let's look at Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9, where God's patience is described. Do you mind reading it?
3: For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. He said he delayed his wrath for his glory.
4: As we shared in the first few studies, God knew everything from the beginning. He was watching everything, yet nevertheless God began His work. The reason why He started His work even after He witnessed everything is because He saw value. It was worth it to reveal God's glory. We will further examine God's glory later on. Today, I want to talk about justice and righteousness. Now, we will look into what needs to happen in order to satisfy justice and righteousness.
3: Yes, as we have talked earlier, just is right and fair. To rephrase, righteousness is to reward the good and punish the wicked. That is right and fair and known as justice.
4: And when this kind of judgment is done, then the justice is fulfilled. In other words, Paying for the good and evil is the fulfillment of justice. Then what is the right penalty for sin and evil?
3: It is to punish sin with death.
4: That's correct. It is only fair for sin to be punished with death. There must be sacrifice for the committed sin. That is fair. This death, in other words, may be called the ransom. And it is right to pay a ransom for death. Let's take a look at the Bible and summarize what we know. We are all sinners, right?
3: Yes. Romans chapter three ten says there is no one righteous.
4: There is also a verse saying the wages of sin is death.
3: Yes, it is written in Romans chapter six twenty three, the wages of sin is a death.
4: Righteous God must judge every sinner with death. That is how God accomplishes righteousness. Because along with the righteousness, Love is also another characteristic of God. Love isn't just one of His characteristics, but He is love itself. Where in the Bible does it say that?
3: I remember in 1 John, God is love.
4: Yes. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, God is love. In fact, there is no reason for God to save us. He only has to perform justice. No one will speak to God. Why are you judging them? Rather, they will talk about Him not performing the justice. However, the love within God's character did not leave us to die. He didn't let that happen, and God prepared an amazing way to show His love.
3: It is a something that only God can think of.
4: The Bible often describes this plan as a mystery. But Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 that this mystery of God that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, was revealed through the coming of the Christ. In fact, we know Jesus very well and His ministry on this earth, so it might not seem surprising. But as I mentioned before, every sinner must die. In order for the sinner to live, someone else must take his place.
3: But everyone else will have to die due to their sins. So they cannot take someone's place.
4: Correct. Everyone has only the capacity to pay for their own sins with their life. They don't have the ability to take on others' debts.
3: That is why we need someone who is blameless to die.
4: And that is why God sent His own Son to earth in flesh. He lived with no sin and died with no sin. Through this, God's righteousness and justice was broken because the one was without sin and sacrificially died for all.
3: So righteousness first broke when men sinned, and the second brokenness happened when a man, Jesus, who was without sin, died.
4: Yes, it isn't fair that a person who is sinless should be punished with death, right? Right. This was God's amazing plan, and we can read about it in Romans Chapter 5, verse 12.
3: Therefore, just as a sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned.
4: Through one man, sin entered the world, and men, being spiritually dead, became far from God. He also experienced the death of flesh. Death came into people. And since all men sinned, death came into all men. But in the same way, righteousness entered us. Let's read verses 18 and 19.
3: In Romans chapter five, eighteen through 19, it says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous.
4: Just as everyone became a sinner due to one man's disobedience, many became righteous, through one man's obedience. The Bible writes this as God's gift. Now let's back up a bit and read verses 15 and 16.
3: But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many die by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man? Jesus Christ overflowed to the many. Again, the gift of a God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification.
4: God gave us a gift through Jesus Christ. What is this gift?
3: It is the gift of a righteousness. By this gift, the sinner, who's supposed to die, would not die because he became righteous.
4: That's right. Just as sin entered through one man and as a result caused us death, righteousness entered through one man to result in new life. Today, we talked about this concept. How does God deal with justice and fairness? As stated, righteousness and justice is to reward The good and punish the wicked, and how God works his justice. Next time, we will study what Jesus did.
3: I hope you will leave this week righteously in Christ, and we'll see you next week.
4: Thank you for listening, and may you have a peaceful week.
2: There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide Where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing
0: buy happiness in our lives. It's not something that will bring us luck or fortune. Money is something that we all need to survive, but it is not something that can bring happiness and joy into our lives. But so many people in the world believe that having money can change their lives for the better, and this is why they try their best to make the most money that they can. So many of the lottery winners believed that they could change their lives for the better after winning all that money, but it only led to emptiness and despair in their lives. Jane Park was so happy that she won the lotto and believed that it could change her life, but only ended up suing the lottery company for wasting her life. She thought that having all that money in the world, buying all the things that she wanted would bring joy into her life, But the more money she spent, the emptier her life felt. So many thoughts came into my mind as I read the article, and when she stated that she felt lost and no longer had a goal in life, I remember there was a time in my life when I acted out because I felt empty with no future to look forward to either. That's when I came to know Jesus. And the emptiness in my heart became filled with Jesus' love. Even in a life of faith, there are moments in life when I feel a slight emptiness in my heart. I thought to myself about where that emptiness came from. I think that it came because I was trying to fill a part of my life with something other than the Lord. It's because my love for some worldly thing is greater than the love I have for God at that moment, and then I feel the emptiness. It's when I place my family, friends, work, or even myself before God that I start feeling these feelings. The emptiness in our hearts cannot be filled with anything else but God. If we are not currently happy with our lives, It is because our hearts are filled with worry and with other worldly things instead of God. We must not fill our hearts with anything else from this world, but fill our hearts only with God. I want to leave you with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless. The whole
2: earth is filled with your glory, Lord. Angels and animators. Creation longs for what's in store. May you be honored and glorified. Exalted and lifted Here at your feet I lay my life In my heart It's fast.